0: A lot of absurd things have happened to me since becoming president, and that may be one of the most absurd things. Yeah, there's more to come, I'm sure. Yeah. Nice riff, by the way, in that song. Uh, it's really, really fun to be here, and it's wonderful to see so many people whose faces uh, and lives matter to me and have mattered to me in some cases for decades. Uh, that moment uh, with Mark was just one of many moments that I remember about him and his family. I will say that his mom is probably uh, characteristic of the very best DNA that First Press Berkeley has. And more people have now felt like they have discovered that Vivian is their answer to the moment of their crisis when Vivian shows up endlessly to be a person who uh, shows the compassion and love of Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty amazing well and uh, a, a great gift. It's really fun to be here. I've been here before, and uh, I'm really glad to be back. It's a tricky thing to sometimes get my schedule to work for these things, and so I really appreciate the flexibility, and it sounds like you've had a really wonderful um, few days. When I was being talked to uh, about the possibility of joining Fuller's uh, faculty, it was really completely counterintuitive to me. This had not been any great desire of mine. I had not done a doctorate in order to be able to teach at at a seminary. I had done a doctorate because I wanted to study hermeneutics in order to be able to be better trained to serve in a college or university setting, because I felt like so many of the debates of the academy and of the culture were really affected by hermeneutical philosophical questions, and that really turned out to be true. So I wasn't about to want to step away from that in order to go into uh, an academic setting. And I remember meeting with the committee and saying um, that, that I was interested in the position. There were some interesting possibilities about it. But the problem was that I felt I would have to step away from the front line. And several people on the committee almost in unison said, oh, no, no, this is the front line. I said, no, 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 no. It is really not the front line. And that is actually scary that you just said that to me. Because you are on the front line. And You're on the front line with people in every possible circumstance. And while, of course, in a living community like a seminary, and Fuller in particular, lots of front line things, lots of ordinary real life, life life-on-life stuff that's happening naturally. But the role of being a pastor is a role, it seems to me, that is one of those front line positions in which you have a chance to see and experience Uh, some of the greatest joys and some of the deepest sorrow and pain and suffering in human life. And if we're doing our our call faithfully and courageously, then it's going to be more true that it's like that, not less true. And what I want us to reflect on then is what is life on the front line like these days and what, um, what does it require besides a lot of sleep, I hope, besides an opportunity for having conferences from time to time like this, Besides uh, many other things, I want us to think really about the question of, will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? It's a question that I've been asking, partly because while Jesus' promise is clear that we will have a church, that much, uh, I think, feels very assured to me, the question of whether we have a church that matters is really a completely different kind of question, and it would certainly be arguable that there have been all sorts of seasons in the history of Christianity in which the church has mattered Less. And sometimes it has been, it has mattered only negatively, not constructively, not in a kingdom oriented, kingdom spirited, kingdom minded way. But the stakes are particularly high and challenging. I think they're fertile because of the challenges that we're facing, but I also think the stakes are higher and the drama, I think, can be greater and the sense of being a pastor who's called into the vortex of people's lives, into the reality of the gospel in, in real times and places, is a narrative that each of you are living in your own distinct ways. I think my greatest regret in sort of helicoptering in and helicoptering out in this conference is not having an adequate opportunity to really hear uh, enough stories, because I would like to hear your stories. I'd like to understand uh, what you're seeing. Part of my work, of course, and part of Fuller's work is to try to listen as as keenly as we can to what's happening. But it's it's an incredibly important time, and it's a time in which we really have to think about um, some of the great questions that are before us. So tonight and tomorrow morning, I want to just do three... Uh, fairly brief reflections about some elements of what I think a church that matters in the 21st century will look like. It's not unlike what the church in the 5th century would have looked like, or the 11th century, or the 3rd century. There will be things about this that are really very common, of course, because what matters most is that the gospel itself is both proclaimed and embodied by the by the people of God and by the life and ministry of the church. So, in one sense, uh, there will be no probably uh, greater aha about this as though uh, i'm about to reveal something that has yet to be revealed in the history of the church or of humankind uh not at all i just want us to remember again um first things i'm sure you remember that old stephen covey analogy of the clear jar where he puts stones in it and says is it full and people say yes that seems pretty full and then he puts gravel and then he puts sand and then he puts water each time asking is it full is it full is it full and then when they ask uh You know, so what was the moral of the story? And he says, uh, the most people always said, if you try hard enough, you can always get something else in. (laughs) Whereas uh, his point of the analogy was, if you don't put the big stones in first, uh, you'll never be able to get them in later. And I do think that there is a crisis in the church. I, I would venture to say even more boldly than that, that I think this period of time that we're in right now, Uh, may well be a period that will be looked back upon as one of the greatest crises in the the American church. I think it's happening um, with particular rapidity and vividness uh, because of the political landscape of the day, but it's happening for many, many reasons, not only because of that. And as a lot of people have suggested, the politics of our day may only just expose what is already there rather than actually foster something that's there or make it so. So I think the question uh, then is that it calls us back to this this sense of of primary things. How do we make sure if there's a church in the 21st century that's going to matter? I think there are things that are primary, and I think they also are things that are sometimes easily forgotten. So tonight I want to focus uh, first on... In the midst of of the ocean of language that washes over us and washes over every person that we know, the the endless ocean of words and images that tell us who we are and what matters and makes a claim on what we think is important and declares to us uh, under any possibility in CNN, for example, everything is now breaking news. And there's a sense that... We live in an endless ocean of breaking news declarations where uh, it's commissioning us into the greatest attentiveness. And if we actually did attend to all of those things, we would n- not only not be on the front line, but we would be probably comatose and uh, and be uh, inert because of the very uh, force of the of the news headlines. So I want to just read a text that it seems to me is is one of the words that we need most. It's partly something we've been seeing about. I want to read uh, different excerpts from Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, beginning uh, in chapter 8 at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Then later in the text, after he continues the logic of that argument and the the, the singularity of the word that is Jesus Christ and that has come through Jesus Christ and, now proclaimed to us because of Jesus Christ. We then come to the toward the end or middle, really, of the chapter, and we read this. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God in the middle of the ocean of, break, uh, of every possible headline being called breaking news, and where there is a moment of both intense drama, a, a sense of a revved engine that is uh, overexercised, overextended, weakened by its sheer um, speed and endless running. It's also the case that, that on top of that, there is another uh, factor that significantly influences the challenges of this particular moment, which is a permeating quality of fear that just ex- exists in, in almost every context of relationship, whether you think about nations around the world. I can't think of a nation that doesn't have dramas going on in it, it at such a significant and really somewhat unique scale that would not have been described in the same way uh, 25 or 30 years ago that now describes the national lives of that. I, was, I, I do lots of Ubering these days. Uh, It turns out, depending on where you are in the country, you can have a lot of Africans who are Uber drivers. So I have a lot of conversations with Africans who are from all places around the African continent. And I I love being in that context because it's so easy and natural to be able to have a conversation with them about whatever it is that that might be happening in their nation. So, who are you? Do you drive Uber regularly? Yes, I'm going to do the preliminary Uber thing. And then we, so where are you from? I'm from whatever country. So this week, uh, one of the drivers that I was with was a guy from Nigeria and he was extremely Nigerian, in the sense that he was animated and loud and bold and extremely wise. And uh, so we talked for the two and a half hours that it took to get from LAX to Pasadena about (laughs) just all about Nigeria in more granular detail than I had ever really uh, had. And he was explaining to me just how uh, the bartering system and the corruption pervades uh, Nigeria what he was describing was really a nation that is in the grip of religious fear, economic fear, where the one of the one of the wealthiest if not the wealthiest natural resource country in Africa has the highest percentage of people that are living at the economic margins. You have people that are that are everyday driven to do all kinds of corrupt things for sheer survival, and their culture is wired to make accommodation for that in so many amazing ways that he explained. But the very next day, I was in the car with someone from Cameroon. The person from Cameroon was again explaining to me, again, in the context of life in Cameroon, just why it was that life in Cameroon is what it's like. But if we come, Zooming in on our own world and simply the airways that fill people's lives and the social media platforms that we engage in and the news. We all know the endless 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 signs, the warning signs, the cries uh, of, of danger, 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 danger. And it's danger on the right and it's danger on the left. Both have their own fears. Both have their own anxieties. Both have their own sense of, in, of inflamed uh, concern. And you and I are trying to be shepherds to people in a context of no, not only oceans of words, but an atmosphere of, of thick anxiety. I'm writing a, a book right now on fear, and in doing this, I, I have searched out about 25 or 30 people who are in cert- life circumstances, sometimes jobs, sometimes economic circumstances, other kinds of situations that people are in, where fear is really one of the most uh, defining aspects of their life every day. I had a very interesting uh, long conversation with a, a teenage girl who's 15 years old, who I was introduced to by her therapist, who, uh, who tol- had told me um, that she had this client that she was seeing and that it, it, if she was willing to talk, that perhaps it would be, she would be a very interesting person uh, for me to, to discuss my project with. She's really at the apex of her athletic achievement. She's at the apex of her academic achievement. And she's at the apex of her social ladder. She is absolutely the shining star. And she's seeing this therapist because every day for her is fundamentally about fear. Her anxiety about losing any or all of those things especially because of the way that the social media world that she and her friends are immersed in defines for her every day just exactly who is in and who is out, who gets notches up or notches down in the hierarchy of the priorities and values of the moment. As she sat there, you're looking at this young woman who's 15 years old who clearly has so many natural gifts and abilities, so bright, so articulate, so funny easily understandable why she charms people and has so many friends. Also, it's just evident by the way that she handles herself, that she's a person who's not only really intelligent and capable, but but she's also, uh, it turns out, a great athlete. In a way, the blessing has actually turned into the greatest burden. Now, some of this is developmental. Some of this has to do with being uh, a teenager. Some of this has to do with being a teenage girl in our culture. Lots of elements to this. But in her particular case, She is is bereft of any hope. She said, I I just have this feeling that even if I could manage to get through today or tomorrow or this year, I just think maybe this is what my whole life is going to be. The therapist uh, and I had she, with the permission uh, of the the young woman, had guided me about what kinds of questions would be interesting to explore. And because of the fact that this is all anonymous and uh, in no way something that would ever disclose her identity. Um, she was just very, very specific about all the triggers, the endless numbers of triggers every day that send her into this incredible sense of exposure. It was like a, somehow like a person just outside any protection. She was just fully, utterly exposed. And her very competency only intensified her sense of anxiety. Now, not everyone, of course, lives in that space. But everybody lives in the places that are, uh, in some way or another, fearful. I could easily write my own biography just through the lens of fear. It would be possible for me to tell my whole story through the ways in which fear has, in various times and places, profoundly affected and caused me to have to reconsider what I'm doing. At times, I think it's actually been a go that has helped me as fear can, right? Fear has an incredibly redemptive value. In fact, none of us would be in this room if we didn't have a really good fear mechanism in our lives. We would never have lasted this long. Fear, we need fear. It is a gift. And it is also an addiction. So one of the things that I think has been particularly fascinating to me in studying this has been to realize that we don't have enough fear based on just normal circumstances and points of anxiety so, no, so there's actually now all kinds of ways of stimulating and repeating the, the fear cycle because of the biochemistry that it actually releases in our body. So the place of extreme sports, the place of gaming, the place of, of, uh, of um, the place of the Walking Dead, the place of uh, Game of Thrones, all of these things are, are forms of artificial stimulus that actually kicks off in our brain some of the same reactions where we have anxiety and release anxiety and release, and we are easily given to all kinds of things that end up causing us to live in that kind of world. So for me, for example, when Free Solo came out, the story of uh, the man who went up the the face of um, El Capitan without any lines or uh, just his own hands uh, and feet, thankfully, he You know the exact outcome of the story. There's, like, no surprises in that movie. It's exactly what you would think it would be. And still, I watched it just like, oh, my gosh. That just makes me so anxious, that particular moment where we're suddenly... And because of the way that our imaginations work and because of the character of our brains, we are so easily hooked. I don't know what your hooks are, but I do know that you have them. And I do know that I have them and that the people that we serve in our churches have them. And in a moment where where on a macro scale we can talk about fear, but in an existential, personal way we can also talk about fear, then we have to ask, is there a word of hope in the midst of that fear? I'm only choosing Romans 8 rather arbitrarily to say, surely here is a word of hope. The way that it begins, as we know, in that great Pauline declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is actually the cornerstone of of Christian hope. The sense that there's nothing outside that gift, which is somehow going to make us the exception, that's going to say, no, except for those who are dot, dot, dot. No, it's there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A church that matters in the 21st century has to believe that that word matters more than breaking news and that it matters more than the fears in the middle of the night or the fears in the middle of the day. There has to be a sense that somehow that word settles something so groundingly in our lives that it's not the verbal proclamation itself, but the way that that needs to continue to work ever more fully and deeply into who we actually really are. One of the things that has been interesting about this exercise of thinking about fear has partly been to meditate in in connection with that, of course, um, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That phrase in Proverbs and other places is, is a phrase which I think really captures in a way a sense that the calibration of fear that is meant to order all other fears is really a calibration that begins by calibrating our life And our circumstances, the reality itself, by who God is. And who God is specifically in relationship to us. And what sets us free, what gives us the capacity to engage, what will enable the church to live beyond its own anxiety and beyond its own distraction is a word that says, you, I've got you. I have utterly got you. You are, I am with you. And I am for you. Some of you know that Fuller's going through a season of a really quite dramatic and exceptional change. Footnote, a lot more could be said. (laughs) Let me just say that this has been fodder for meditation on issues of fear, because it cannot control what we're doing. It cannot control what we're doing. And it cannot not be acknowledged either. So in the midst of the fear, plural, of all that that holds, how will we calibrate ourselves? How will we calibrate ourselves as an institution? How will we calibrate ourselves as a team of leaders, as faculty and administrators together, as students? How do we hold something that we actually can't manage, that we we will make decisions about a future that we cannot see, that will actually affect not just people that happen to, in one way or another, be residential students at Fuller, or uh, online students at Fuller, or people who will in some way or another be affected by the ministry of Fuller. We can't manage really any of that. We can't see what that's going to look like. All we can see is what is in the foreground, the circumstances that we can try to uh, control and manage and respond to. But even more deeply than that, we have to remember that the greatest grounding of this exercise is, will the fear of the Lord be the beginning, uh, the grounding of our wisdom? That's not a bumper sticker. That's not a plaque. That's not a tagline. That's actually a living reality into which, as a community in this season, the most important thing we should be able to say about ourselves afterward is, we really truly sought god as the one to define and shape and urge and prod and challenge what it is that we think we're trying to do and why it is that we're trying to do it you have in your own lives all kinds of areas of challenge you have issues about what it means to raise children you have people who have are now have raised children and are now entering into or even far along in the process of raising or helping to raise grandchildren. You see horizons that you can't control. You see circumstances that are beyond your experience. You see all kinds of endless questions. What is a word that grounds reality for you? Max Dupree, who was the chairman of uh, Fuller's board for many years, and also the CEO of the Herman Miller Company, uh, is well known for one of his uh, quotes, which was, the first uh, responsibility of a leader is to define reality and the final task is to say thank you. It's that sense of defining reality. So what really, at the core, is our understanding of reality? In a world of breaking news and in a world of fear, we're endlessly fed all kinds of data points, claims, possibilities, assertions, that these are the things that are the most real, among which some of them are, and among which a lot of them are just not at all. So in the middle of all that, how do we keep ourselves clear? How do we try to get to some kind of understanding of the things that matter most? When the Quakers talk about a clearness committee as a way of gathering a, a, group of, a small group of disciples together to think and pray and listen to God and listen to each other together, that's in a way an image and a phrase that I think captures the need for practicing reality checks. How are we finding a clearness committee so that what we're really seeing, what's actually defining for us, what's primary, is actually something that's emerging out of a deeper place, a clearer place, and ultimately a theological place that is grounded in this um, extraordinary declaration that the, the most real thing in the world is the love of God and on which all of life is meant to be deeply grounded and rooted. I've described Fuller as a place that has its roots in orthodoxy with branches and innovation. What I mean by that is this sense that the only thing that Fuller has to offer the world, ultimately, the only thing that your church has to offer the world, the only thing that you as a pastor have to offer the world, or that I have to offer the world, that really ultimately matters, is a rootedness in reality. That's the main thing that we... Have to potentially offer and then we seek to bear witness to that in all kinds of different ways through our words and our actions and our compassion and our mercy and our pursuit of justice all of those things become manifestations that we are rooted in reality but in actual fact the bible uh, as the early chapters of romans make so clear we're just really not rooted in reality (laughs) that's that's the fundamental crisis that we're actually completely uh, distracted by the wrong things, that we are taken up by the wrong obsessions, that we have our eyes fixed on the wrong things. And in the middle of all that, then, the question becomes, How? what's the possibility that the church is actually going to pursue reality? That One of the ways of describing the crisis of the American church right now, in my mind, is that it has just lost its way, that, that the way that it, the church has divided itself is that both sides of the of the left and right divide are each declaring that they each, over and against the other, have a picture of reality. Do they have elements of reality? Probably. But does it seem to actually be quite confused? Yes. Do I think that the answer is something in the middle? Absolutely not. I don't see Jesus as a teacher of balance. That's not really anything that I've ever been taken with. I think he's an extremist. I'm just saying, Those extremes are not the helpful extremes. And separated from each other, they're not the helpful extremes. Even more. They actually really depend on each other, because the extremes of the left and the extremes of the right are actually naming elements of reality which divorced from one another are actually then completely distorting to our understanding of reality, because they distort a picture of what society is, what human relationship is, what justice looks like, what economic well-being and physical well-being looks like, a thriving culture, all that. Hugely, hugely problematic. Here, I'm just getting at this amazing phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation. So a church that matters, it has to be grounded in reality. And in that context, it is a church that knows that God takes the crisis seriously. So seriously, of course, that he gives himself to the crisis with extreme and sacrificial love. But then he also calls us to follow him into that offering. So this is why he's the one who uses the images most of the fact that we have to take up a cross and follow him. Cross bearing, not exactly in the American repertoire of church advertising. It doesn't tend to be the way that uh, almost any church that I know of uh, genuinely talks regularly about what it means to be a disciple. Cross-bearing is because it has been sometimes pietistically abused and because it can be so narrowly defined and because it can be so arrogant and self-righteous. There's all kinds of good reasons to be careful about that and other religious words. But the fact that we are called to be people who are meant to walk into hard and suffering places where, where evil exists, that's why we're called light and salt, right? It's a dark world that needs light. It's a putrefying world that needs salt. We're meant to be people who find ourselves in that, but the culture of American Christianity, a great deal of it, has often been built much more around safety than it's been built around uh, really distinctiveness, peculiarity, the oddness of being people who identify with a God who is this kind of a God. So the whole notion that, that we are called to be people who follow an enemy loving God is not really so much in the vocabulary or the spiritual practices of the church. The way the church seems to find itself is we find the people who are like us and who we like, who are our tribe, and then we call that the church, and then we just hope that the people who aren't like that will leave, and then, then God will be on our side and all will be well in the world. And then we encounter Romans, where God goes into the vortex and says, no, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, an extraordinary expression of that kind of mercy. But what I find so helpful about the latter part that I read is that Paul, the apostle, often the debate seems to go on around chapter seven about whether Paul's describing himself as the person who lives in spiritual tension, Uh, in his pre-Christian or post-Christian life. I've always believed it was his post-Christian life. I do believe it's his post-Christian life. And I think the evidence of that is what happens here in Romans 8, where Paul is um, describing in in this vivid language of groaning, repeated multiple times, the whole creation groans, that we groan, that Jesus groaned, that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. There's this incredible, ongoing sense of identification with a reality that is filled with suffering, with injustice, with pain, and that the God of the world carries that and shares that and invites us to identify with that because even the Holy Spirit groans with us. I just find this an amazing convergent thing. Will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? Not if we decide that we're not going to be a groaning church. Now, let me distinguish that from a whining church. (laughs) (laughs) I will just call that a different thing. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about the whining church. We know our own experiences of the whining church. That's a different kind of church, although it is sometimes intertwined with the church that groans. But when the church is really living out its deepest identity, it is a groaning church, not as its totality, but as a kind of reality set point that says, I get that this is about deep waters. It's about a deep work. It's about a transformational reality that's gonna to have to encounter pain and suffering and ultimately death itself. So I go into those places. That's, that's what I do. I have a friend who, when his uh, children were young, went through seasons like many children do, where they're afraid of the dark and of who might be under the bed or in the closet or whatever it might be. And so they had adapted a a family routine, which they called charging the darkness. And the way it would work would be that they would all gather together outside the door of the terrified child and the terrified child would be out there. And then one parent or the other would go in first and ransack the room and make sure that everything was clear, come out and declare it, it's free. There's nobody there. And then the next parent, and then eventually three of the children until finally the youngest of the children would then make their way into the darkness and then just charge the darkness and feel in control of this reality and present in it. And then they would have a family celebration and then they'd all go back to bed. Now, that wouldn't be everybody's family routine, but what I love about the instincts of that is a sense of willingness to charge the darkness. How different the church in the world would be if it if its reputation was, that really we're a church that knows about charging the darkness. We're really, we're ready to do that. We're ready to go together into the places of, of difficulty and challenge, and we're going to be present in that place, in a non-anxious way, in a in a sustained, sacrificial, life-giving way. But instead, so much of, of kind of consumer Christianity has been built all about more balloons and more clowns in its worst moments, but also better projectors and better videos in other moments. And in any case, it's not always been evident that the church is willing to actually enter the darkness. I believe, I'm sure that part of the weariness that you bring to this kind of a conference every year and why it's so important, however, is that lots of you spend a lot of time with people in those places. So It's both true and not true that the church doesn't do that. You, I think, as a pastor, I can certainly say in my years as a pastor, some of the most profoundly redefining, reclarifying pictures of what it means to be a human being came to me through the gift of being with people in all kinds of circumstances. And to believe that there is a God who groans with us in that space, who ultimately will triumph as well, but rather than jumping to the triumph, Let's first hear that in an ongoing, unfinished work, God is groaning with us. It matters a lot to go and see somebody in the hospital knowing that God is groaning with them. Over the last uh, two months, a good friend of mine's uh, wife at 47 died of pancreatic cancer. and. The first day she was diagnosed, he began a journal online, which um, came to my mailbox every night at around 8.30 or 9. And it became for me a liturgical practice to, to wait for that to come, and then to usually try to step away from anything else I was doing, and just spend time focusing on that particular day's notice, which was every single day, uh, and she died at about three o'clock in the morning on Easter morning. He's a pastor. He knows what it's like from his own experience to go from a a vibrant, amazing, life-giving family to now one uh, daughter, seven years old, mom, amazing person, just dies, and dies as boldly and honestly as a person could die. Amazing, amazing death. But it was for me, as it would for any of the, that person's friends or any of us, be an invitation into this space that we have to then say, well, do we have any word for this? <laughs> do, we, do we have a word to offer in that? Not a glib word, not a cheap word, not a shiny word, but is there an authentic word that actually takes that groaning seriously? And not just now, but in six months and in a year when the grief is still going to be going on. And, perhaps the few years after that, at the very least, and really at the moments when his daughter, their daughter, will have these critical turning point moments. So one of the things that the mom was able to do was to, was to make significant gifts for her daughter for when she graduated from high school and she graduated from college, when she got married, when she had her first child, et cetera, et cetera. These, these amazing gifts all made with the same kind of intentionality that that mom had been demonstrating all along, because she's, she's a person that is always willing to go into the hard places. That's who she was. And so she took her family there and her friends, and she changed people's lives by the vivid honesty of her dying. So my question for us is really, are we, are we living into and knowing in our own bodies in our minds and our spirits that we have a God who says, there is therefore in you now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Part of the reason that I got into the fear book was really because I was so struck, partly through the work that I was doing in the first few years that I was at Fuller, as I interviewed pastors in various settings, all kinds of different denominations, all sorts of uh, sized churches, dynamics, experiences, One of the most common themes was fear. That many, many pastors are fundamentally, it seems to me, defined a lot by fear. It comes out in sort of standard phrases that we don't even really particularly notice. But it's things like, hey, have you thought about doing this? Uh, Not really sure that would go down so well with our session. What about if you did that? Yeah, we thought about that, but we were afraid that if we did that, dot, dot, dot. Right? That kind of just really ordinary thing. But then, of course, at deeper levels, it's more, it's more existential than that. Is this church really just a reflection of me? And if it's not going well, what does that say? Am I only as good as my last sermon? Am I only as good as the last uh, pastoral care moment that went well, as opposed to the circumstances or conversations that may have been harder? We have to ask ourselves in a way that I think ministry puts on the line regularly. <laughs> that we have a public self and a private self, these two things have to be ultimately one, and is there good news for us in that? We don't have anything to really offer a church for the 21st century if we're not prepared to at least keep moving deeper and deeper into that kind of soil, where the gospel in its groaning reality needs to be present. One of the people that has um, really affected me, uh, positively in uh, in my reflections about this has actually been somebody I want to uh, Show you a video of um, You will know this person. It's not a surprise uh, Can I get a signal at the back that the videos? Okay, don't, don't start it yet, but let me just set it up so this person uh, is somebody that you all know and uh, it's a person who uh, at 10 years old um, her mother died at um, Uh, Throughout her early childhood and into her young adult life, her father was a very prominent uh, pastor and was both known as an incredibly um, uh, silver-tongued preacher and a person who also had a reputation for philandering. She had her first child when she was 12. She had her second child when she was 14. By the time she was 20, she had had two more children. Her life is really marked by um, enormous swings of great talent and ability and also great suffering and challenge, where she's really caught a lot by men, a lot by men who have tooken, taken advantage of her, who wanted to uh, uh, use her for whatever personal ends they might want to have, have been able to use. However, her career, as you will know and uh, can imagine, is a career that ends up becoming uh, one of the most famed uh, singers in American musical history. She has honorary doctorates from Harvard and Princeton and Yale. She is a person who's, uh, whose musical talent and whose spirit captures to me what I want to th- spend the final moments reflecting on uh, about what I will call groaning beauty. Let's uh, let this be an expression of that. And I'd like you to think in what way is this an expression of groaning beauty? Oh, man, that is amazing. So, groaning beauty. How is that? Talk to me. What struck you if, if you play with that set of words? Groaning beauty. What? Cross. Sorry? The cross. the cross. In what way? Go on, say a little bit more. I mean, uh, this like reflecting the suffering of Christ. In the re- in yes. The reflecting the suffering of Christ. In- so in, yeah. Yeah. Other things? Yes. 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 If you haven't seen the film uh, that was only recently released about her life called Amazing Grace, uh, it's really worth seeing. It's it's really just about her singing gospel music for um, ever and ever. It was really quite an amazing film. Yes. I think of and uh-huh and Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she took off that coat. Yes, what's that about? Yes. 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 I am right. I no right. Exactly. For my full bodied self absolutely yeah yeah What? yes right At the same time, right that exactly thank you if you'd like to sing please don't <laughs> don't let us stop you please yes Yes, yes If you don't know, Carol King wrote that song for Aretha Franklin, and uh, and so part of the and but they don't know who's coming, as it were, or supposedly they don't know who is coming to honor them. So she had not known in advance of that moment that Aretha was going to arrive in her glory.: I, I, uh, Obama. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, a little shout out, a little sidebar. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Others. Other observations. Was there one here? Yeah, Steve. Yes, yes. Yes. you know Some seen her in my performance, but I never seen her play the piano before I yes. that. Yes. And I was really struck by that I not seen right. Some of you know that. a of of Um, that in her early years as a performer, especially when she was endlessly on the road, she was often ripped off by people and not paid at all or paid too little and late. So it became an established habit that she insisted if she was going to play there that she had to be paid before she played. She had to be paid in cash and that uh, she would put it in her purse and she would put the purse on the piano. So in that uh, moment, she has this, uh, you know, fancy uh, gold purse, and she comes out even at the Kennedy Awards and puts it <laughs> on the corner of the table. <laughs> like, this, this is what uh, groaning Beauty looks like. It looks like naming reality. It means taking charge of what you can control in a world of what you cannot control. And for her, that was one expression of it. And I thought it was an amazing thing, even in this performance, that that habit, which was well-known about her, was something that she would choose to do. Yes, deep emotions. The people are identifying the people. Absolutely, absolutely. That's where the, the hitting the heart. Yes, exactly. That's where her music so so profoundly lands, right? And why it, why hearing that is so different than hearing some, at least let's call it just for superficial stereotype, electronic music, which feels, uh, which can feel so. Flat and two dimensional, really, at best. That's changing, but nevertheless, I'm just saying as a, as a stereotype, this feeling of a person whose soul. Did you hear the, the language of that song? That, the phrase, of course, you make me feel like a natural woman, is the only phrase that is typically remembered about the, about the words, but there's, there's a moment where she's describing the soul being in the lost and found, right? Okay, that's groaning beauty, right? That's understanding the reality of what it feels like. To be in a context where your soul is in the lost and found. You're just disoriented. The thing about this is this doesn't have to be my experience for me to be completely connected to the vividness of that story in both its pain and in its hope. It begs questions which make me want to respond to it. I think one of the most moving things about that whole sequence to me is actually the way the audience, when she drops the coat leaps to their feet. Uh, psychologists might call that mirror neurons, <laughs> but what I think it really is simply is it's, it's an invitation, right? It was a, it was in her shorthand an altar call. It was a, a display of saying, "In my utter vulnerability, before you, as I sing this song, which is making a very hopeful declaration that that though my soul was in the lost and found." now my soul is not in the lost and found because of her relationship as the song and its words suggest. In the biggest and most profound sense, the Christian faith is saying that our souls are in the lost and found. Can we dare to name that? Can we really enter into what that terrain actually looks like? How aware are we of our own alienation? Can we say that it is truly for us and for our community good news, that there is therefore now no condemnation? And that so transforms our own experience, it transforms our way of perceiving the world. So my neighbor is a person, whoever that neighbor is, friend or foe, left or right, enemy or not, a person whose life is beloved of God in the most profound way and over whom God would want to pronounce and make known to them, that there is therefore now no condemnation for you. We live in a world of so much accusation, so many forms of condemnation, rife condemnation. This is why that 15-year-old girl is petrified what she's petrified most of it of is actually the condemnation of her friends she lives in terror of that and therefore she thinks that the achievements that she's making are the ones that alone are going to make that actually sustainable really, this video is really a celebration of vulnerability. it is it's an amazing celebration of vulnerability which is a perfect bridge to say that what will have to be true of a church if it's going to matter in the 21st century? It has to be a vulnerable church. We've tended to be a fortified church, an organized church, a you know a church that that knows how to do things decently and in order. I remember uh, many years ago when the PUP report, so-called PUP report, had come out, Peace, Unity, and Purity, and uh, and that I was asked to write an article about what it meant. And among the many things that it said was um, that we should, as a denomination, practice um, discernment and that we should take a rest from votes and practice discernment. So uh, one of the things I said in the article was, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely right. It's a really, really good thing that we've been called to this discernment. The problem is that that's not the denomination that we've built. We've built a denomination that knows how to vote, but not a denomination that necessarily knows how to discern. So it's going to be very difficult, and part of the discernment, if you're really entering into a discernment, is out of groaning beauty. If you're really entering a discernment that is not simply about seeking the mirror reflection of your own desires and habits, but actually trying to understand what it is that God's doing in our weakness, then that's just a, that's an astoundingly different kind of life. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of church are we? Are we a church that's grounded in reality? That's where I began. Are we a church that's grounded in actually being able to name and tell the truth about, uh, about the circumstances and, and, and to do so in such a way that we can find our way in the ocean of, of language and in the fog of fear? How, do, we, do we have the capacity to find and hear and proclaim and embody a word that lands in that space? If we can't do that, then, then we have to go back and start all over again because we have to go back We have nothing else to offer. So if that's not getting clearer to us out of our own pain and suffering, out of our own questions and anxieties, our own fear, how do we expect that the world around us will have any indication of of what that's going to look like? Then how do we actually build into that? And this is where this groaning beauty image to me has felt so compelling. I think of all the years that I was in Berkeley, one of the things that I so loved about being a pastor in Berkeley was that no one ever went to church there because of social pressure. I I love that. If you showed up, you showed up because you had your own reason to be there. And usually it was because of some kind of hunger. And the ability to realize that that was not a singular hunger, there were oceans of hungers of different kinds that would be exposed, exposed and expressed. But in that, how do we find and name those things? And how do we invite people and do we ourselves Uh, can we ourselves name and describe and invite people into that space? And are we prepared to charge the darkness? And in that, are we prepared not to be the heroes of the story, which is not the point of charging the darkness. It's actually to enter into the places where there might be and often are real dangers. And then do we have the capacity to live in the dissonance of groaning beauty? To say that's not a sign of a problem, that's the sign of a vocation. So I want to say to you tonight, if there's a church in the 21st century that's going to matter, it's going to matter because it shows the fruitfulness of groaning beauty. Groaning in the way that Romans defines it as this sense of a deep, resonance, soulish, mindful, embodied acknowledgement that things are not like they should be and that things don't have to be this way. And the hope and confidence of the beauty of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ that takes all of that and actually makes us new. Some of you know that that in Japan, there is a kind of beautiful art form that's called kintsugi, which is, I think, as I understand it, something that was developed in approximately the 14th century. If a bowl was broken, then the parts and shards of the bowl would be uh, gathered up and then uh, glued together by gold paint. And now, in a completely entirely different way than was true of the original bowl, you now have this bowl that is, has all of these fissure lines with this gold leaf in between and, and filling the spaces and holding now a bowl that is not the bowl that it once was. It's actually stronger, interestingly, and it is, in fact, at least to my aesthetic, even more beautiful because of the very fact that it was broken and healed. Our witness, a groaning beauty witness, has to arrive out of that. Not out of winning culture wars, not out of winning some kind of raging debate on the internet, not out of demonstrating that God's on our side and not on yours, but out of an identification with a God who, even tonight, is groaning on our behalf because he knows our suffering and need and the realities of the world that's around us. Fuller is occupied right now in a very demanding set of of decisions and actions of so many different kinds. And I keep saying to our community, we just have to remember, this is still not the front line. This is our absorbing focus, but this is the front line. And all of this that we're trying to do here only matters if it matters ultimately there. And it's in that context where we have to prepare not just a seminary that will have its own sustainable dynamic program and educational opportunities and resources and yada, 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 but a place that actually knows how to enter into the world with good news. That is still voraciously needed. And when the people at Kennedy Center, faith and no faith and whatever faith, leap to their feet, they do so because now that is a credible witness. That's what we are meant to offer. Lord, by your grace, tonight as we think about these themes and as I just close my comments, I'm just moved by how many places of need are carried in the hearts and minds of every person here, their um, place of service, the church they're in, the congregation they love. Oh God, meet us, we pray. Fill us with the assurance that you've grown with us and that you have the capacity to bring something beautiful, Kintsugi-like, out of even our brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if we have any time for... um, I'm not seeing any clock. I guess we don't. Are we at the end?
1: Well, if you are a parent and you have some children in childcare, would you please go and get them? Their kind of end point is 8.30, so if that's you... If you would go get them, sorry about that. We probably have some okay. everybody Just else a few I comments, think can questions. probably stay up yeah. for a little while longer. Yeah. And so we'll have a few questions and I have some announcements. We won't belabor at the this, end. but if
0: there are things you want to um, say or comment on or questions you wanna raise or tomatoes you want to throw or <laughs> anything. I, I, I have a question. Yes, so how does the church contextualize and feel? society Mm -hmm. because I think we're in the 50s. We're not in reality. I'm talking about how we look at doing church. Yes, yes. What's your thought about that? Well, I think the big question is what do we do to cultivate cultures of empathy, which is really, I would hope, the work of the church. I mean, if you were to say, how do you know that a church is growing in a way that would really matter to the kingdom of God? I would say one of its marks should be a greater and greater capacity for empathy, which is really different than... Um, than hierarchy or uh, we're right and you're wrong. So we have to ask ourselves individually in this community, what do we do to cultivate empathy? How do we do this? I've been taken by this um, educator in Canada who uh, felt like she was seeing more and more violence in young school-aged children. And she felt like the reason was that they uh, in complicated changing days of family systems, that children were not being taught empathy in the home they weren 't learning it from their parents and they weren 't seeing it in their relationship with their siblings, so she developed this curriculum, which now is in uh, throughout Canada in all kinds of uh, different school settings and it 's been shown a double-blind testing result that's really quite extraordinary in its capacity to grow empathy. What it does is that you take a brand-newborn baby into, I think it's usually around a third-grade room, and this newborn is in the classroom um, every, uh, every week. And over that period of time, you see it in, the, in a nine-month of a, of, of a school year, you see the child's development. And there's a curriculum that she's written about what you do when the child's present. But she, in writing about this curriculum, has said, But the really important part of the curriculum is not what happens when the baby's in the room. It's what happens when the baby's not in the room. And there's a curriculum that has been written for saying, now, because of what we knew about the baby last week and the the way the baby has been growing and changing, and what we think might be the way the baby might be growing now, based on the time of day, the circumstances, how, how are we able to enter into what that baby today might be feeling based on what the baby knows and doesn't know, feels and does and appears to feel, right? All that kind of stuff. It's stimulating empathy. And the really amazing thing is that it does show this remarkable result that in a long term way, the children who have gone through this curriculum have a very, very different empathic capacity than children who haven't. So I love this as as an image of what is the church doing? We could set ourselves uh, a goal of of cultivating deliberately empathic communities. How How do we do this? I think it can happen, um, again, both in what we can directly witness and then also what we can deliberately cause ourselves to think about. So if you think about the way that we pray in church, if you think about the way that we name the other, the stranger, the foreigner, the need, if we think about what kind of evidence we're cultivating through our preaching and through public worship, that's part of it, plenty of other circumstances, short-term mission experiences, I think, are attempts at trying to cultivate empathy. Sometimes they do that. The the studies seem to indicate that they don't do that if you don't have really substantial follow-up. It's important to have important preparation, but it's even more important to have sustained follow-up. And the absence of that means that the billions of dollars that the American church is spending on short-term mission experiences have almost no real consequential impact. That's just worth pausing on. so if we're going to do something different, then we have to ask ourselves and our community, how do we do this? And I think there's, all, there's endless ways of doing this. I, ha- I think for me, I'll just say a couple of things that have been really important. Over the course of time, I have a, a, a rotating set of images of about, at any one time, about 12 people that I have met, I've come to know, at least to some degree, who I have a picture of. They're in completely different circumstances in the world. And I find it very helpful for me. To have their face on the screen and to meditate on everything that I know about them, their family, their circumstances, their, this, the economic, social, political challenges, people around the world, lots of them in places of, of really, really acute need. Um, and they're, they're, it's a very sacred thing to me. So, part of what my own daily devotion is, is to let these images. Um, keep stimulating and driving me, I pray, toward greater empathy. But of course, the greater empathy has to be cultivated with living people that are right in front of you, not just the images. So it's the person that you really don't want to be with. Okay, Lord, this is a time for cultivating empathy. This is my opportunity today to stand closer, not too far away, to not pull back to not, to not be defensive. And you might imagine in a school going through all the things that Fuller's going through, there's one or two touch points where maybe that would come up <laughs> as, as a set of challenges. And so I have lots of opportunity every day to enter into why that person has the frame of reality that they do and what this means, right? I, I, I think it's really quite doable. That is not the instinct that I would say our culture primarily um, calls us to. It calls us to be self-absorbed, really, obviously, literally self-absorbed. I've told the story before of of speaking once at a conference that had such bright lights on the stage that I could see almost no one that I was talking to, but what I could see was a really large video monitor here that had an image of me. And then on the other side of the stage, there was another really large video monitor that had another image of me, and then there was me. So there was me, 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 and I thought, this is sort of the postmodern trinity. This is. This is the world I was made for, where everyone and everything is like wired into what matters most because it's about me, it's for my sake. That's the culture that you and I live in, that we are cultivated to become highly attentive to. No, I'd really like 2%, not whole milk, really. No, actually, I'd like it to not have refined sugar. Like That's not really what I do, I just do unrefined sugar, or no sugar. right? Our tastes are just like astoundingly refined because that's just really what we prefer to be that, to be that particular person. We're really good at being highly empathetic toward ourselves. <laughs> but we are often failures at our capacity to enter in with anything like the kind of care, even among spouses, even children. A friend of mine has written an astounding book that I would recommend called The Orchid and the Dandelion about child development. And Tom Boyce is his name, it's just an amazing, amazing book. And one of the things that he says in the book is that no two children ever grow up in the same family. So if you just take that as kind of a baseline and you then as a parent say, how clear am I about the fact that this child is not this child? And what difference will that make in how things are going to go? So. Yes.
1: Yeah. So the the image that comes to mind mind bo- both with uh, the power of of its of, I think that we see in Christ's empathy, but also the empathy that we're invited you know both to experience and to have, as well as uh, the the deep sense of hope and trust, and then proclamation is Christ's words that take us to Psalm 22 on the cross. You know, yeah. He cries out. That seems his you know, way of hearing his words is actually that he actually bookends all of Psalm 22 and brings yes. us into the fullness of Psalm 22. Amen, yeah. This sense of, of feeling abandoned and right. yet hoping and trusting and then right. rising with proclamation and right. being able to say, you know, with a real proclamation, it is done, it right. is finished. And yeah. you're holding out that sort of hope for yeah. the rest of the Amen. world. But, you know, the power of Aretha's song matched with that psalm just right. sort of makes it boom. Right,
0: right. Exactly. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I think the other thing that's interesting about... Is that Matt Cain? It is. The, the very Matt Cain? The very Matt Cain. Who yeah. has an interest here in going to Fuller Seminary. God bless you for that. <laughs> May that one day happen. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you know, it's interesting that, that it's called A Natural Woman.
1: That It yes. seems like there's an appeal to the beginning of the story. Yes, um, yes. That,
0: that this was God's plan all along. Yes, um, yes. You know that you mentioned that there's no condemnation, but I wonder if you'd speak about that that there was like, this is God's plan all along that there's yeah. no condemnation, the reframing at the beginning of yeah. the story. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that question. It's really true that um, that one of the things that I think is often lacking is that we don't start with a robust enough picture of creation. We, Especially people that are evangelically inclined tend to start with the doctrine of redemption, not the doctrine of creation. That's always a major problem major problem. Our theology does not start with redemption. It starts with creation. And that is part of the of what then, if that's given up and surrendered and neglected, then any of the possibilities of being um, the people that we've been created to be are, are sort of made secondary to uh, to the second act, I suppose you could call it, and then even more the hope of the third act. But it's really in the first act that we get a sense of who the person really is and what they're actually about. And it certainly is the case that Um, that that the way this is, the the dark shadow side of this is sort of the me-centric church that is about God wants you to be all you were created to be. That's a really tricky phrase, Uh, a little bit like um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as though it is actually giving us three commands, that we should love God, love our neighbor, and love ourselves, when that's not actually really what the psalm is teaching. We're going to already be prone to love ourselves. The question is, are we going to give that love to anyone besides ourselves? That's a different call. So the question is really, how do we figure out how to really live into um, a vision of the world and a vision of our neighbor that is called and created to thrive, where they're meant to thrive in their whole total being? There's this um, amazing student at Fuller named Andre Henry, who uh, is an African-American guy who grew up in Barbados. And no, uh, it wasn't Barbados. I'll think of it in just a second. Um, and he, uh, is just a, a really quite exceptional person for countless reasons. But there was a chapter of his time at Fuller that lasted for maybe a year and a half or so when he felt as though he was getting nowhere in general in talking to people, not at Fuller per se, but at Fuller and anywhere else about what it actually is like to be an African American and the issues of race that he carries with him, the burden that he carries. So he decided, um to live this a bit more vividly, and he uh, got a large boulder, probably about that big, um, and painted it white, and then wrote on the boulder boulder, uh, all of the words that are associated with the burdens that are tagged to people who are African-American, so all the epithets that might be used. And he was saying, I need to externalize the burden so you can see what it feels to me like I'm carrying every day. And then he put it in a red wagon. (laughs) And then for a year and a half, everywhere he went, he brought the wagon and the boulder. And as this happened, um, of course, it was provocative in any given setting. And the most surprising to him was that over the course of the year and a half that he carried uh, and trailed this, uh, this red wagon, the place where there were the least questions and the least engagement was the church. So he would he deliberately in this period of time felt as though he wanted to see maybe it was just his church maybe it was not true of other churches so he would just go for about a month at a time to different churches trailing his wagon and once he was in the church all the questions that he would get on the street in the coffee shops at work etc 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 lots and lots of questions lots of engagement get inside the church no one ever even hardly acknowledge it. They would hardly look at it, and they wouldn't ask about it. You can imagine this caused some difficulty in figuring out, then, what is it going to mean f- to flourish, right? If I can't get you, who are calling yourselves brothers and sisters in Christ to me and me to you, to actually engage in the thing that is actually the burden that I didn't actually create and which I'm now carrying with me in the world despite anything that I may decide to do. That's a failure to flourish, right? And um, I, I perhaps will mention him again more tomorrow, but, but I think knowing Andre in this period of time, um, it was a very, very significant, in a way, declaration of, I want to flourish like you want to flourish. And there's things about my identity in the world that make that possibility seriously hampered for all kinds of historic... And uh, contemporary reasons. We'll come back to more of that tomorrow. Okay.
1: Uh, I'm George Gilchrist, and uh, yes, hi George. I trained uh, interim transitional pastor, and part one in the training, which ties in so well with what you said about fear, is that we are trained to be the non-anxious presence. Yes. In a local congregation. Yeah. And I have found that metaphor to be so useful in so many parts mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. So right on about yeah. fear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, you know, you, you start out talking about this environment
1: of enormous anxiety mm-hmm. and, and, and this um, atmosphere of
0: enormous distrust, right and left, and it's reflected everywhere. And um, with, with, on top of that, talking about mirror neurons and empathy and all of this, uh, do you feel like part of the problem might be that we are lost in a language of power relationships? We define reality in terms of power relationships and not in terms of belonging mm-hmm. and if that's true, how do we move the seminaries and the whole conversation to more of a hermeneutic of belonging mm-hmm. rather than of power? Yeah, well, I think behind that there's the 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 fact that society has become so transactional right so the The issues of power are going to be more evident the more prominently transactional something is. Not that power doesn't exist in communities of of relationship and empathy, but it it exists differently. It's handled in different ways. In a a transactional culture, um, which ours is a heavily transactional culture, then it's going to be likely that this comes to the surface. And then it's going to be likely that especially the people that are left at the margins are going to understandably be both angered and... Um, and explosive at times in their demonstration of the fact that they have been marginalized. And um, I think that so much of what's happening in the Me Too movement and in many other contexts is really a reassertion reass- of an identity, right? So, how do we cultivate? This is, this is why Calvin, I think, is worth studying for so many different reasons. But one of the, Cal- one of the things that I love the most about Calvin is um, the way that he saw the church as a school. And if we really saw it as a school, not meaning a place of educational information, but a place where we are formed, a context in which we learn and practice to being formed in the love of Christ, then the possibility that the church could actually be this agency of, of community, communion, uh, rather than actually of transaction, at least has a greater chance of standing. And we are doing so in a practice where, as a community, we, we give ourselves and receive in, in ways that enable us to learn to love beyond our own bounds. If that's, the, if that's the desire and culture of the church, which I have to say, in many churches, it's not. So you'd have to first decide that you wanted to be that, uh, and then how are you gonna figure out ways of practicing it? But if we can live that way, then we leave and go out into the world to live our worship in a way that actually embodies, has a greater likelihood, I think, of embodying genuine communion. We have the communion instincts. Whereas, in fact, often in churches, it's this transactional, in spiritual terms, as it is in secular terms in the culture. I'll give you what you give me if dot, 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 and it all becomes a very conditional culture.